Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, this morning our text is verses 1 through 5, and as is our custom, I'd like to ask you to stand with me as we find our place there in First Peter 5, and we will read this text, and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord to help us as we study the Word this morning. First Peter 5, beginning in verse 1. So, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the time that we have shared in this letter, and we pray that you would help us to, to finish strong, that we would maintain a Holy Spirit-empowered focus, and that you would help us to see what these verses have to do with the rest of the letter, and that we would apl- apply them rightly, that we would see this morning just how desperately we need this text in this age. Help us to understand the scriptures, Father. Help us to see our own hearts. Help us to love the church as you have structured it and help us to follow your design for it so that we might endure the testing of this age. We pray that we would do this, Father, out of love for one another and out of affection for the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might be glorified until Jesus returns. So we pray these things in his name. Amen. Please be seated. My family had occasion to drive through North Dayton last week, and we saw some of the tornado damage. It it is sobering to see that kind of devastation. It's been a while since I've seen anything like that, and and yet having grown up where I did, I'm a little bit desensitized to it. In in Texas, the phrase tornado watch has a, a bit of a different connotation. A tornado watch uh, in Texas is where the sirens go off and everyone goes outside and watches the tornado. We do that because they happen so often 
and more importantly, because the homes have been structured in such a way that there's at least one safe place to go. So you watch the tornado until it gets too close, and then you go to the cellar, and you survive in the cellar. The cellar is structured in such a way that you live. There are engineers who have, who, have, who have structured these things so that the danger passes right over the top of you and everything's okay. The, the same thing with people from California. Californians don't typically lose their minds over earthquakes. They're, they're used to them. And Californians have, have structured their buildings to withstand earthquakes. You, uh, you, you, don't have to be, you don't have to go through too many earthquakes before you realize... We need to figure out a way for these buildings to keep standing and not kill us whenever there's whenever the, these things happen. In fact, there, there's a website. If you're taking notes, you, you can write this down. It's called YouTube, Y-O-U-T-U-B-E.com. You can watch videos of buildings swaying back and forth in earthquakes without falling. It's because these people have learned how to structure their buildings in such a way that they don't succumb to this tremendous pressure. The people who live there in California, they, they trust this structure, and they tend not to panic when they feel the tremors coming. Recall that Peter has referred to the church in chapter 4 as the house of God. That house is under tremendous pressure in the form of persecution from the world. That has occasioned the writing of this letter. How will we endure? How will we make it through the testing of our faith? Part of God's wisdom is displayed in how he has structured the church so as to maximize its ability to survive that pressure. would like to begin this morning by calling your attention to the very first word in this text, a little bitty word, so... That tiny word attaches this passage to what has come before. We may be tempted to come to these first five verses of 1 Peter 5 and regard it as just Peter's dry instruction on church policy. I mean, polity. That is, that is just straightforward teaching about how the church is to be governed. But Remember that Peter is writing to us as elect exiles, those who are under pressure for having associated ourselves with Jesus Christ. He's writing to help us endure the testing of our faith. So these verses in chapter 5 are part of that instruction. Peter wants the church to endure the testing of faith. And so now he gives instruction both to elders and to those under the elders' charge as to how they should interact with one another so as to maximize their ability to endure the testing of their faith in this very difficult age. God has designed the church wisely, lovingly, graciously. He's designed it in such a way so that each individual member is helped to endure. And we can identify five features of the church here that help us to endure the testing of our faith. The first is that we find that the elect exile is helped to endure by elders who shepherd willingly. The elect exile is helped to endure by elders who shepherd willingly. Look with me again at, at verses 1 and 2. 
Peter writes, and again, he's, he's continuing the flow of thought from chapter four. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So Peter begins by grounding his own credibility to give these instructions. He gives, he gives three grounds for his credibility. First of all, he is himself a fellow elder. Peter functioned as an elder in the church at Jerusalem. He knows what it's like to shepherd in the ways that he's about to call all elders to shepherd. Second, he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And usually the word witness in the New Testament does not necessarily indicate that someone has seen something, but that they testify to it. So Peter's calling himself one who testifies to the sufferings of Christ. And we have seen Peter doing that in the book of Acts, as our other elders have preached through that book. Third, he's a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed Chapter 1 taught us that when Christ is revealed, we share in his glory because our faith has been tested and it has been shown to be genuine. Now, all three of these things indicate that Peter is in the trenches with these elders and, and he has credibility as one of them. Peter is not standing back and saying, hey, do, do as I say, not as I do. But Peter is saying, follow me as I follow Christ, much as, as Paul has said elsewhere. Follow me as I follow Christ. The controlling command in these verses, verses 1 through 3 in particular, is shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And that command is followed by a participial phrase, exercising oversight, which broadly describes the work of a shepherd. Now, we may take that, that phrase, exercising oversight, and understand it to mean simple administration or supervision, but that would be a misunderstanding. It points to continuous watch care or looking after. The, the elders of the church are to care for the spiritual needs of the church. I like the way the, the New, New International Version translates this phrase. It, it, it renders it watching over them. Watching over them. We, we, should, we should think of this phrase as, as, as meaning exercising care rather than just exercising administration or exercising supervision. This this idea, shepherding, exercising care, is the primary motivation for the pastoral care calls that the elders have begun making in the past few months. If you're a member of Providence Bible Fellowship, most of you should have received a phone call from one of the elders. The reason that we're doing this is because we want to be very intentional and systematic in the way that we shepherd every individual in the church. We have been, we have been conscientious about this in the past, but this is a way for us to be systematic about it and make sure that no one is falling through the cracks. Now, there may be a few of you who have not yet received a phone call, but you will. And the reason that you're going to receive that phone call is because we want to obey the scriptures. We want to make sure that we are actually caring for you, finding out what's going on in your life. What are your spiritual needs? How can we pray for you? Do you need encouragement? We want to encourage you. Do you need a specific kind of teaching? We want to deliver that to you. 
We want to care for you as a shepherd would care for, for the flock. And some people have asked, why, why phone calls? So several people have asked, well, can, I, can we just meet for coffee? The reason for phone calls and not face-to-face -face meetings is that phone calls are more conducive to a more straightforward and intentional focused spiritual conversation. I cannot have that kind of a conversation with somebody here on a Sunday morning. There are too many distractions, and it is, it is too easy for a conversation to, to just level out into very surface, small talk. We're doing phone calls intentionally so that they can be focused, spiritual conversations. So expect a phone call, all right? It, it's a great thing that the Holy Spirit has, has done for us here and in the Old Testament by using shepherding. As a metaphor for church leadership, shepherding entails leading, feeding, protecting, guiding, comforting, and even disciplining. A shepherd cares for the sheep. And Peter, Peter delivers that metaphor, and then he follows it with three pairs of descriptions. And each, each one of these pairs contains a don't do it like this. But do it like this. And the, the first of those pairs is found in the verses that we just read. It reads, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. The needs of the congregation during this, this age of testing are not well served by elders who must be prodded to do the work of shepherds. One of the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy 3 is that he desires the office, which is to say that he desires the, the work that the office entails. The, the church is well served by men who see the needs of the flock around them. They naturally move to, to meet those needs. They see teaching that, that, that the, the flock needs, and they, they do it formally and informally. They see lack of vision that, that needs to be rectified, and they desire to provide that vision. They see a person who needs to hear hard but loving things, and they, they are willing to say those things. They see conflict that needs to be mediated, and they'll step into that situation and do it. They see spiritual dangers on the horizon in the congregation, and they cannot rest without addressing those dangers. They see this person or that person floundering in their faith, and they move to help. And they don't do so because they are obligated to. They don't do so because they are being watched, but because they have a natural inclination to lead, to shepherd, to teach, to guide those who are under their care, to be faithful to the, the chief shepherd. When, when men serve under compulsion, that is, they, they, they have to be prodded to do this work, the flock is not going to be shepherded well. They'll not be helped to endure. Ministry tasks will fall through the cracks. Members of, of the flock will fall through the cracks. There will be a lack of vision and leadership, and the health of the church will suffer. The, the, the church is helped to endure by elders who shepherd willingly. Second, the elect exile is helped to endure by elders who shepherd freely. The elect exile is helped to endure by elders who shepherd freely. Look at the last part of verse 2 with me. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. What might we, 
we make of that phrase, shameful gain. There, there are at least a couple of ways that an elder might shepherd for shameful gain. The first of those would, would look like shepherding being motivated primarily by a paycheck. Now, both Jesus in Matthew 10.10 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 indicate that it is appropriate for gospel workers to be supported for their labor. And Paul also in 1 Timothy 5 verses 17 and 18, he points to that same thing again. It's appropriate for gospel workers to, to be supported for their labor. Yet, making a living is not a reason to shepherd. And some of us, some of us, some of, some of you who, whom I've talked to, we, we, we've had conversations about this. We, we have known men who have remained in ministry when they should not have because they, they've remained in the ministry simply because they did not know how to make a living any other way. I've seen this numerous times in my life. And in a sense, I feel for these men, but that man's problem is not the problem of the church. It's unhealthy for the church to have a man serving as a pastor who is motivated mainly by the financial support. A shepherd should shepherd because it's his passion. He does it freely in the sense that he would do it whether he's paid or not. Those that are paid should be paid simply because the, their tasks are of such a nature that they could not be done while maintaining another job. It's, it's not a career path. It's a calling, whether, whether one is paid or not. And we have a, a brother among us who is who's a great example of this, of serving freely. Pastor John served as a vocational pastor in Michigan for 13 years. Vocational pastor for 13 years before God providentially brought him and his family to Ohio. So Pastor John knows what it's like to get his living from the gospel, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 9.14. He, he got his living from the gospel. When, when the Botkins came to Ohio and joined this church, John determined that he was just going to be a faithful church member. The, uh, the, the chief shepherd has providentially and kindly placed within John Botkin the heart of a shepherd, and so he just can't help but do it. And so even as a, as a church member, we found him doing that kind of thing, meeting with people, discipling people, praying with people, giving counsel. In other words, shepherding unofficially. So the, the elders, the official elders of this church found it to be a no-brainer to formalize him and just recognize him as an elder here. Now, Pastor John is a non-vocational elder here. He works a secular job and still pours himself out shepherding the flock, just like he did in Michigan when he was paid. Now, John is not unique among our non-vocational elders. All, all of these brothers pour themselves out. They're wonderful. The only reason I bring John up is that he has had the paycheck before. The, the, the fact that he shepherds now without it proves that this man shepherds freely and, and eagerly. So when, when, you, when you have shepherds like that, you know they are not in this for the money. You can rest assured that they are going to walk with you through the fire. They are walking with you through the fire. They love you. That is what the church needs in this age of suffering. 
It, it, it helps us to endure. When, when, when an elder is motivated primarily by the living that he gets from the ministry, he is treating it like a job or a career and is therefore not exhibiting the heart of a shepherd. And, and I would go so far as to say that in the eyes of the Lord, he probably doesn't look very different from the shepherds mentioned in Ezekiel 34. If you're familiar with Ezekiel 34, I will, I'll read a few verses from that chapter here in a moment. But those shepherds used their own position of authority to benefit, from the, benefit themselves. It's a dangerous thing for a church to have men like that serving in the local church. A second way that an elder can shepherd for shameful gain is to, is, is to shepherd simply to acquire the influence of that office so as to use that influence for his own benefit. And that could take the, the form of using that influence to pilfer money from the church or to gain favors from the, the affluent members of the congregation. And I'm, I'm aware of, of pastors who have done this. Uh, I know of a former pastor who was at a very large church who only spent his free time with the wealthiest members of the congregation. He, he used them to, to take him on very lavish vacations and golf outings. He even asked them to do fan, financial favors for his friends. This man was, was no shepherd. And he ended up causing great damage to the, the, the church that he, that he was at. A, a godly elder, the kind who, who helps the elect exile endure, is one who is, is not about his own gain. He, he serves freely in the sense that he's unconcerned about what he is getting. He is there to give whether he is supported financially by the church or not. Third, the elect exile is helped to endure by elders who shepherd as examples. The elect exile is helped to endure by shepherds or elders who shepherd as examples. Look at verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, if we consult Ezekiel 34, which I mentioned a moment ago, we find that there are two ways, two ways for an elder to domineer over the flock. Okay, listen very carefully. If you're taking notes, you might write down Ezekiel 34, verses 3 through 5. Ezekiel 34, 3 through 5. I'll read those now. You do not feed the sheep. This is the Lord talking to these ungodly shepherds of Israel. You do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. Now if you pay really close attention to those verses, you could see that in Israel the shepherds were both forceful and harsh, and passive and neglectful. Those things seem like opposites, but they're happening at, happening at the same time. The text says there was no shepherd there, simply meaning they did not lead. They did not give direction. They did not care for the sheep. All of those things, all of those things are the functions of leadership. And they were harsh and forceful. 
They, they were domineering over the people under their charge. Just like we learn from Genesis 3, where we read about the fall, in Genesis 3, we learn that it's possible to abuse one's authority by both being overly aggressive and by being passive. So also an elder can domineer over those in his charge by being harsh and forceful in his leadership and by refusing to provide leadership. He can be a megalomaniacal brute or a timid non-entity. And, and both of those kinds of shepherds tend to lead from the rear. That is, they, they do the opposite of the positive instruction that Peter gives here, which is to be examples to the flock. A, a, a godly elder should be someone who is constantly visible. He's, he's in the lives of the people of the church. He's living the Christian life in front of them. He leads from the front. So he's not merely telling others what to do or, or, or watching from the periphery. But he says with his life, like Paul, Follow me as I follow Christ. These kinds of elders, these kinds of godly elders that, that, the Paul, that Peter is describing, they make it easier for the church to endure because they provide a picture with their life of what endurance looks like. And they're present among the flock for the flock both to be able to watch and to be able to hear their instruction. Verse 4 gives the great incentive that elders have to shepherd in this way. Look, look there with me. Verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter describes Jesus as the chief shepherd. Elders are accountable to and follow the ultimate direction of the good shepherd of John 10, which we have heard read earlier this morning. Elders, they don't do their own thing. They do his thing. They answer to him. This chief shepherd, this good shepherd who laid down his life to gather us all into the fold. He has kindly brought together under shepherds and has tasked them with leading, guiding, feeding, shepherding, caring for his flock. They are accountable to him. And if they Shepherd in the way that he has guided them to, when he appears, they will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, this crown is not the kind of crown that one wears as an emblem of one's own achievement. All right? This is wonderful. Numerous commentators point out that glory is appositional to crown. That's, that's a grammar nerd way of saying that, that glory renames the word crown. All right. In other words, we, we could translate this uh, another way by saying the unfading crown, which is glory. A, a, a faithful shepherd's reward, his, his crown is eternity enjoying the glory of Christ. Now, I'll tell you what, I can get excited about that. Amen, elders? Amen? That's the crown I want. Amen? Yes, that is the crown I want. Sharing eternity with the chief shepherd. Now, we've just spent probably, who knows, half this message, more than half this message, 
going through a few verses that would seem to pertain only to elders. And so have, have we wasted all of your time? Because I see three, four elders in the room here, including myself. Is there any application for church members in these first four verses? I would say that there is. I would say that there is. I would say that there is an implied application If this is the design for the church, if God has designed the church to be shepherded by men like this, then the application to the individual Christian is put yourself under the leadership of these kinds of men. Find a church that is being shepherded by these kinds of men and join that church. Attach your life to that kind of church. And if you find yourself in a church that is not like that, that does not have these kinds of shepherds, then find those kinds of shepherds. That's the application. You will find it very difficult to endure and be faithful in this life if you are in a church that does not have shepherds who are following after and emulating the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Fourth, the elect exile is helped to endure by a church that submits. The elect exile is helped to endure by a church that submits. Verse 5, beginning of verse 5, likewise you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, the the use of the word younger does not indicate that only the younger members of the congregation are expected to to be subject to the elders. It's simply that the word younger is just a thematic counterpart to the word elder. The entire flock is to submit to the shepherds. You'll remember that submission assumes that there will be times when we disagree with those in authority over us. It assumes that there will be times when we disagree with those in authority over us. What are we to do in those situations? When we disagree with those in authority over us, what would the scriptures call us to do? Assuming that that authority is not calling us to disobey the scriptures, we are to obey them. And we've seen this over and over and over in this letter. This exhortation also assumes that there will be decisions to be made in the church requiring the application of wisdom. That is, there will be decisions to be made about which the scriptures do not give super clear instruction. You know, the scriptures don't address whether announcements should be made at the beginning of the service or at the end of the service or if they should be done at all. Scriptures don't tell us that. I kind of wish they did. The Bible doesn't give detailed instructions about how to go about admitting members into the local church. You you can't go to a place in the New Testament to find out whether or not Sunday school teachers should rotate on a weekly basis or if there should be one main teacher who, who, who takes a week off here and there and just has a substitute. Those are decisions that, that have to be made regularly in a local church, but the scriptures don't give clear direction. Now, if the church is going to survive in this difficult age, it must be an orderly body. And there's, listen, we've got enough pressure as it is, right, from the world if we're, if we're going to survive, we have to be an orderly body. One of the gifts that God has given to the church is to provide for that order by recognizing certain men in the church to lead in making some of these kinds of decisions and providing the, the kind of shepherding that we've talked about 
already this morning. The health of the church is best served when the members of the church first inclination is to submit to those who are leading them. There's a parallel passage in Hebrews chapter 13. If you're taking notes, you might write down Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17. It reads, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Elders, elders will give an account for how they've kept watch over the souls in their charge. You happen to be in a church where the elders are well aware of that. The writer of Hebrews makes plain that the submission of the church to the elders is an advantage to the church. Now, how, how could that be? How could it be that it's, it's an advantage to the members for the members to submit to the elders? Well, a church that is shepherded by elders who are able to do that task with joy and not with groaning, they are going to benefit from better shepherding. It is a wearisome task to feed sheep that are constantly biting the hand that feeds them. Now, listen, I, I, I want to make, make this very clear. I do not say that or, or any of these things to address a personal grievance. Not at all. I am simply, I'm simply explaining the text. It has been my great delight and joy to shepherd this congregation composed of people who seem to be to very quickly and naturally submit to the elders. Very grateful for that. The, 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 the elders, though, we, we are not under the illusion that you all agree with everything that we do. Right, brothers? We know that there's disagreement. But we're very thankful that it seems that this congregation is, is quick to submit. There has been very little overt resistance to the direction of the elders over the years. And let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, that is a benefit to you. It is a benefit to the kingdom of God outside of these walls. So once again, I, I find myself on this point needing to, to paraphrase Paul from 1 Thessalonians 4. You have no reason for anyone to instruct you regarding submission to the elders because you are already doing so. However, for the glory of God, I would exhort you to do so more and more. Amen. The elect exile is helped to endure by a church that submits. Finally, the elect exile is helped to endure by an atmosphere of mutual humility. It's helped to endure by an atmosphere of mutual humility. Let's look at the rest of verse 5 now. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Think for a moment about the climate that naturally exists when, when everyone is under pressure. Some of us have known this in, in, in the workplace. Perhaps you've been in a situation where, where an employer was making layoffs. and Nobody knows if they're going to have a job tomorrow or the next week. What tends to happen in those situations? People begin to be motivated by paranoia and self-preservation. They assume the worst about one another. There, there's no camaraderie. There's no teamwork because everyone is consumed with their own near future. 
And everyone is thinking, why should I work together with you to help you accomplish your work when I need to look good so that I could keep my job? People are also thinking, if you don't help me, I naturally assume that you're out to get me so that you can keep your job at my expense. Now, existing as, as the church inside of a culture that, that hates us doesn't create exactly the same kind of atmosphere as a hostile work environment, but it's similar in some ways. We, we can fall into the trap of caring more about our own hurts than those of the people around us. We, we, we will tend to bear our own burdens and not those of the people around us. And those spiritual gifts that Paul referred to and Peter referred to back in chapter four, they will go unused and the church will not be built up in love. In an effort to make the church a place that is more conducive to our own personal comfort, we may begin to contend for our own preferences. And basically, suffering and pressure can cause us to think, more highly of ourselves than we ought, it can cause us to look after our own needs first and foremost. So then, what wonderful language Peter uses here. He, he doesn't give just a simple command to be humble, but what does he say? Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Wear Humility. Let your every interaction with one another both assume it and communicate that the other person is more important than you are. And the way that Peter puts this, clothe yourselves with humility. I think he must have been hanging out with Paul because, because my mind immediately goes to Romans chapter 13 where, where Paul writes, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you, you know, when we clothe ourselves with humility toward one another, that's essentially what we're doing. We are clothing ourselves with Christ. Putting on humility is clothing ourselves with Christ. Paul makes that connection in Philippians 2. Now, write this down. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11. I'm not going to read that whole thing, but I'll read verses 3 through 4, all right? Philippians 2, 3 through 4. There, Paul calls us to this kind of humility that, that Peter has called us to in our text this morning. He writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, he exhorts the church to do what Peter has commanded, demonstrate humility toward one another. But then he goes on to say in the following verses, this is the very mind of Christ himself displayed in what? The incarnation and the passion. And, and you know the, the, the passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ, Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. You know the passage. Paul's point there is that we depict the gospel itself when we clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. Clothing ourselves with humility is not our natural inclination as human beings. It's uh, exactly the opposite. We're, we are prone to clothe ourselves with pride from our conception. God is the supreme creator, 
of the universe. We cannot fathom his greatness, his might, his splendor and holiness. He is worthy of all worship and obedience. He created man to exist under his authority. He created man to to live under his authority and to serve as his representative in the world to image his character. But our very first father, Adam, elevated himself relative to God by pridefully going his own way and refusing to walk in submission to his loving creator. And as a result, he was separated from God. And you and I, all humanity with us, because we are descended from Adam, we also have hearts that are bent against God, hearts which are inherently prideful. And we are wise in our own eyes. We naturally want to go our own way. As a result, with Adam, we deserve eternity under the wrath of God. Our true state is one of dark, lowly helplessness. But in our spiritual pride, we believe ourselves to be just fine without God. Even though left to ourselves, we'll spend eternity in hell. If we would be saved from sin and its penalty, we must also be saved from our own prideful hearts. God's solution to our problem was to send the eternal son to earth. So this eternal son, eternally co-equal with the father. So so the father, worthy of all praise, so also the son. Co-equal with the father, yet, as we have already mentioned from Philippians 2, did not count that equality with the father, something to be grasped, held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being made in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he did what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, that Jesus, his obedient life and his atoning death are the basis upon which God is able to declare sinners forgiven and righteous. All those who turn away from their sin and trust in Christ, they are united with him in his life and death, and they are saved forevermore. The gospel teaches that God's work in Christ continues in us by conforming us into his image. We're progressively made like Jesus. Therefore, we should grow in our emulation of his humility. It's an implicit denial of the gospel for those who proclaim that gospel to act pridefully toward one another. So for for us to consider others lower than us in the church, that is the antithesis of what Christ did when he lowered himself, took the form of a servant, and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. On the cross, he has, he's called all of us who follow him to do what? What did he call us to take up and follow him? He called all of us to take up our cross and follow him. And taking up that cross and following him entails enduring the suffering of this life. And we do that in a way that glorifies him by depicting his humility toward one another in the midst of our suffering. By his grace, when we interact with one another in this way, we help the whole body to endure until he comes. 
that humble mind of Christ, it helps me to consider others, help others, serve others, minister to their needs, be there for them, and use that spiritual gift that I've been given so that the whole body is built up in love. But think about these words at the end of verse 5. The, the ground for this admonition to, to regard one another with, with humility. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Think about those words. God opposes the proud. You do not want to be opposed by the almighty creator of the universe. And the only thing necessary to draw that upon yourself is to think more highly of yourself than you do of others. That's it. But what a kindness. He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Stay close to Jesus. Pray for that mind of Christ. Clothe yourself with Christ, with that humility. And help one another endure. Listen, the world is bringing heat and pressure upon the house of God. We're seeing it all the time. Many of us are experiencing it right now. How will we stand? He has structured the church in such a way that if we follow his design, we will endure. We need elders who shepherd selflessly. We need members who submit for the benefit of the whole body. We all need to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. Listen, there, there's no such thing as a perfect church, and this one certainly isn't. But by God's grace, may we progress toward greater faithfulness to this design for God's glory and our endurance. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great kindness and wisdom displayed in the gospel itself. You sent your son to rescue us from our sin by taking on human flesh and taking our sin upon himself, wearing it on the cross, bearing your wrath, suffering for it, dying it, killing it there, being raised from the dead that he might give us life. We thank you also for your wisdom and how you have structured the church so as to help us endure the life to which he's called us. Pray, Father, that you'd help us to embrace that wisdom. Embrace the, the, the grace and love displayed in it. And see, Father, that this is, this is a loving tool that you've given us. To help us be faithful to you during these difficult days. Father, we pray for the elders of this church. That you would, that you would help them to be faithful to you. Shepherd the flock of God here at Providence, faithfully, faithfully, willingly, freely, with, with, with great passion, Lord. Pray for every individual of the church that you would, you would grant all of us hearts to submit to our leaders. Understanding, Father, that they they serve as under-shepherds answering to the Lord Jesus and that when we submit to them, we submit to the Lord Jesus. And finally, we pray that you would grant us the heart and mind of Christ, his, his great humility toward one another. 
that in this that you would allow us to depict the gospel within this church to one another and outside this church to those who were lost. They would see in us how we love one another. They would see the picture of the gospel and be drawn to faith in Jesus. Father, please use all of these things to help us endure until the Lord Jesus comes. We ask all this in his name. Amen.